uh, Barbara Weston Thomas, whose father was Dick Weston, um, was married to a woman whose first name was Seavey, C-E-V-I-E. Now apparently she and Harold Bowley had known each other. Dar Weston came to uh, a very tragic end up against a tree and uh, killed himself, uh, smashed himself to pieces. And um, eventually Harold Bowley married C.V. Weston. And so that was, you know, another one of those stories. They knew each other when they were growing up or whatever. And uh, But it was interesting to me because uh, I knew C.V. Weston and uh, I knew her children, um, all of them, I think. And um, the um, uh, person that uh, she remarried after Dara died was, um, you know, the person that had been the uh, headmaster, uh, not the headmaster, the uh, superintendent of schools where I went to school. When you grow up in a small town and you don't move away, and a lot of other people don't move away, then this kind of history begins to hitch to each other. Uh, you know, it, it's it's amazing. Uh, you know, and but um, it's like the Fessendens. Uh, when I was born, apparently all my father had was an old truck, and he borrowed. Eldorus, Eldo, Fezzanen's car to drive my mother to the hospital when I was born. And the next day, that was May 3rd, the next day, or the day after, was the Nashua fire. And my father went tearing out of Brookline to find his wife and his new child, and they wouldn't let him in. They wouldn't let him into the city. So he finally convinced the policeman. Uh, my father was about six feet tall and even when he didn't have any weight on he wore a size 17 and a half shirt and so he, he was not a small man <laughs> and, and um, he had a way of being very convincing and uh, so that they let him in so that he knew that my mother and I were okay. But, um, growing up uh, the Fessendens were uh, good friends of ours and then um, when I got married uh, Frank, to Frank Reed, uh, Frank uh, was working for Paul Fesnan, who was then a veterinarian in Melbourne. And um, Orville Fesnan, uh, who was named for his father, Orville David, uh, who was the person that all the older people in town called O.D. Fesnan, who had the, the business, the grain and lumber and so on and so forth. Um, Orville uh, took over the garage uh, from his father, and um, of course they're both dead now. And uh, Jenny Fessenden is the person that my daughter Jenny is named for. I was too hidebound in those days to name a child what I felt was a nickname. And uh, Jenny Fessenden's name was Jane, but there were so many Janes in her family that they called her Jenny. And so I named my child Genevieve uh, so that I could call her Jenny uh, without, you know, having it be a nickname for a name. Today I might look at it differently. But uh, she did a lot uh, for the school systems and so forth. And um, I won't mention the other family's name, but there was another family and myself. And uh, for several years uh, she paid for our school lunches. 
because she knew that there was not that kind of money, you know, even uh, 25 cents a week or whatever it was, it was minuscule. But, uh, you know, she, she paid it, uh, and, um, and she also uh, saw to it that other things like that happened to people in town. And uh, Eldo uh, was always um, very generous to us as far as, you know, the things at the garage and, and when Frank was overseas to take care of my vehicle and see to it that things were okay. And at that time, Leo Austin Sr. Uh, was one of his mechanics. And, uh, you know, it was just a very good relationship. And when my mother died, Eldo at that point was quite deaf. And he was, you know, aging, and he did not go that many places. But he went to her funeral, and he waited outside for me. He admired my grandmother and my mother both. And... If I die with people remembering me as well as he remembers them, I'll be just satisfied. Well, then you should be very happy. <laughs> Although you haven't died yet. <laughs> oh, I have no intentions of dying for a long time yet. Uh, but, um, you know, there are just so many people in town uh, that were friendly. Uh, with us and, and did things uh, for us and um, because we lived on the town line between Melford and Brookline you know we had friends in, in Melford as well as in Brookline and my mother uh, there were at there were three people that I know of in uh, Melford that uh, she graduated from college with and they were my aunts uh, I had a whole plethora of Nassau arts, uh, for which I am eternally grateful. But uh, Hazel Romani, uh, Hazel Pettengill Romani was one of them. Uh, Edna Ames Sargent was another one. Her husband, uh, Jake, worked uh, for public service for years and years and years and retired from there. And then um, Sybil Amsden Batterson uh, was the other one. Uh, Sybil died much younger than a lot of the others, and uh, her children, I think, graduated from high school ahead of, you know, they, they were older than I. I don't think uh, that they were even seniors when I be became a freshman, so I think there was more than four years differences in our ages. But uh, my mother had her yearbooks, and as a child, I went through these over and over and over again, which is why I can remember a good share of the maiden names. And then um, she ended up living in Goshen, and I always used to laugh because everybody said, you know, uh, you know, you go to Goshen, and that was like going to the ends of the world. Um, she, um, Marjorie Atwood Abbott, uh, she married later in life. Her mother uh, was always Nana Atwood to us, and she died just before Jenny was born, which was 1954, and she was in the process of knitting a ball, uh, which she was stuffed and had on a, you know, a hanger thing that you could hang in the crib or the uh, carriage, whatever, and it was stuffed so that it was soft enough for a child to pick up and, you know, uh, hold on to. 
and uh, she didn't finish it. So Aunt Marjorie finished that and sent it down to me uh, with uh, whatever, I, I think, uh, I forget just what else uh, she sent down. But, um, you know, it, it, um, the, the Nassau aunts uh, were good. And when Aunt Hazel's husband committed suicide, his family had Romani family had a quarry in Mulford and it was going downhill just like today's stock market and uh, but the family insisted that he keep it going and so when he died there just wasn't anything left for her and um, the house that he had built for her on Nashua Street um, you know, she had to sell, she had to give up, and uh, she had two uh, children. And uh, Cynthia was the one that was a year or so younger than I, and Jack was the one that was a year or so older. And um, I remember, you know, Cynthia, we were in high school at the, at the time he committed suicide. And after my father died, my mother had a license, and of course Hazel didn't. And uh, so my mother used to take Aunt Hazel places. Uh, her brother, Frank Pettengill, was a very prestigious doctor in New York City. Uh, one of the stories I remember about him is that uh, he was called out uh, one evening uh, for uh, an emergency and he had to treat Helen Keller. And uh, one of the things that she said to him was, may I touch your face? Because that was her way of being able to see what he was like. And Frank Pettengill gave the address at um, Amherst, um, must have been the Bicentennial. Uh, and I remember going in and taking, uh, you know, Jenny, uh, she was little, and if Catherine was born then, uh, you know, I, I had a child at least in the stroller, and uh, going and hearing that. But um, so all the things that Aunt Hazel had done for my mother over the years when it was depression time and my mother was struggling to raise us, then my mother did back for Hazel um, afterwards. And, um, you know, I, I adored my Aunt Hazel. Uh, she was the one, she and Aunt Marjorie were the ones of the Nassau aunts that I knew the best. What is that school? Nassau College. It was an institute when my mother went. They laughed at her when she told them it would someday be a four-year college and that it would be co-ed, which it is now, and it's in Springvale, Maine. Oh. Every time I go to Maine, it's right off of Route 202. Um, you go up from Rochester, you go up 202, and Sanford is the next big place that you come into in Maine. And uh, before you get into the center of Sanford is... Um, turn off to go to Springvale. It's, um, it, it makes a loop and goes back into the center in uh, Sanford. And my mother um, had, I think I've said this before, but had polio on both legs before she was a year old and um, recovered and was able to walk. She was 60 years old before I could walk faster than she could. And um, but she wasn't that um, interested. She wasn't into support, sports and stuff. Uh, she got her Nassau letter. They laid out a route, and she walked, I don't know how far, but she walked X number of miles, and that is how she earned her letter. 
and her dream was always to walk across the United States. And uh, of course, she didn't get there. Uh, it, it wouldn't be safe <laughs> to even think about it today. But uh, that—that's you know, it was that was just part of my bringing up. So even although I was born in the Depression, I lived in this little bitty town that I've always said I was probably the 500th person uh, on the um, census that year. Um, it, it we had outlets, we had connections through other people, through our parents, and through people in the town, and through the school systems. Uh, in those days, uh, the teachers took a tremendous interest uh, in their uh, pupils, and um, you, and it was a teacher-student relationship. Uh, it, it wasn't any of this, uh, well, I'm your big buddy, I'm your friend, and so forth. They were your friend, but it was a specific kind of relationship. Uh, you didn't call them by your first name. I would not even to this day, if I came across Miss Nash, her na name was Madeline. If I came across uh, Miss Nash today, I would no way in world call her Madeline for love the money because I couldn't make myself. Uh, you know, it, it would it was not that kind of a relationship, but it was great, uh, the relationship we had with those kind of people. I mentioned Halloween. Okay. Um, the, the, my father would never let us downtown. Uh, when we came home uh, with our candy and so forth and stuff, uh, and trick-or-treat wasn't um, the big deal that it is today. Um, but what we would do is uh, we would dress up in our costumes after dark, and we would have our jack-o'-lanterns uh, with the candles in them, and we would uh, walk probably the half mile down to uh, Grandma and Grandpa Marky's to show off our costumes, and uh, they would ooh and ah, and it would be, and that that was a big deal. Uh, to downtown, the kids uh, used to uh, soap up the cars, and you know, and eggs and things like that, and you know, like I said, the, the ladies' bloomers got run up the flagpole, and the buggy get on top of the Daniels Academy in Portugal, and <laughs> you know, the, things like that. Uh, and nobody got arrested and sent to jail? Not that I was ever aware of. Not that I was ever aware of. And I, I talked about um, the river that um, ran by the Daniels Academy building, because where the fire station is now is what was our playground. And that was that level, and then it was another level that was down back. Well, the boys played on the top playground, and we girls played uh, down on the lower one. In the wintertime, the river would freeze over. Now, of course, that's running water. Um, and it would be black ice. I don't ever remember seeing that river freeze over any deeper than black ice. And, of course, we were forbidden, <laughs> which is an invitation when you're that young, to go out on the ice. And I can remember going out on that black ice and having the stuff wave underneath our feet. Lauren Quimby was talking about um, last time at um, Historical Society about falling in and getting soaked. So you should ask him about that one of these days. Um, but, um, you know, it, we were young. You're immortal, you know, you, you just, it, it, it's not gonna break. And I can remember beating it to the shore and uh, climbing up the bank, because the bank is pretty steep right there. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, if you didn't move fast enough and clamber up the bank, now this is wintertime, the bank was probably snowy and icy, um, you were going to be wet. <laughs> and I never got wet. I was smart enough to get out of there. You know, but, um, and on that river, down below, I don't know whether it's still there or not, but there was a swimming hole. And uh, we had a rope with a knot on the end of it that we used to swing. It was hitched to a big limb, and we used to swing out over and drop into the swimming hole. And the boys used to go down there and swim lots of times on lunch hour. And they didn't come back one day. And Loring was telling about, you know, one day they <laughs> went down there. And, of course, they didn't take their bathing suits with them. And, of course, they weren't going to get their school clothes wet. So when Mrs. O'Neill went down to find them and bring them back to school, there they were in the swimming hole. <laughs> Without either their school clothes or their bathing suit. And, you know, <laughs> you know um, That's wonderful. Yeah, I, I think, you know, she must have got a little shook. <laughs> you... You mentioned at one point something that stuck with you that must have been important as a kid, the stuff that you wore to school. Or the oh, yeah. Um, dresses were pretty, pretty long. Oh. And um, in the wintertime, of course, you have to understand, the elementary school was heated with wood. And you had this big register down front. And you'd go out at recess, you'd go out at noontime, uh, you'd come back in sopping wet, you'd take your shoes off and your mittens and stuff and lay them on the register, and if you got real wet, the teacher would let you take one of the little chairs that they used for the reading classes to sit in, and you could sit around the register and you could dry out. Uh, now, because it was cold, um, and uh, most of our parents had come from a different era than we did, um, I didn't have to wear long underwear like some of the other kids did, but those that wore long underwear, then you wore cotton stockings over it, and you had to put the underwear on and get the cotton stockings up, and then uh, you wore this garter belt arrangement or your um, with the short-legged underwear that we had to wear, which was one piece with a drop seat. Uh, you had the button things on it, and the, the garters were hitched to that, and that's what held up your cotton stockings. And I can remember my brother, and I can't remember whether, not all the kids did, but uh, my mother, you know, had been raised by a different kind of family, and boys didn't wear long pants until they got to be a certain age. So my brother would have on, like, wool Bermuda shorts and long stockings to go to school with in the wintertime. And I can remember begging my father to let me take my long stockings off and wear my at least knee socks, if not ankle socks, uh, for my birthday, which was the 3rd of May. And I couldn't always get it. And so, you know, here you are wearing these uh, confounded things and um, a lot of the uh, 
girls that had to wear the long stockings, as soon as they got in school, you rolled them down around your ankles. Now, you've seen pictures of the flappers uh, in the uh, 20s and stuff, you know, with their stockings rolled down. Well, that's what they used to do. I didn't dare. Uh, my Aunt Miriam lived near the school, and I knew it certainly would get back to my mother, and I'd be in deep trouble. But um, then uh, when you got older, they came out with Snuggies. They were like thermal knit, you know, like today's thermal knits. And uh, you got varying lengths. They could go down below the knee or just to the knee or just above the knee. The ones I had were just above the knee. They fit your skin tight and uh, they, they were horrible things. They were an abomination. I hated them with a passion. And uh, wore those long stockings on top of it with the garter belt. There wasn't any such thing as pantyhose. And then um, some of the kids wore just knee socks. And one of the other girls had to wear the long stockings with the knee socks over them. And I pleaded with my mother to let me wear knee socks, and she wouldn't let me. So I, had, I ended up wearing knee socks over the long stockings. And um, so it, at least it looked a little better. At least I felt it looked better. And it wasn't anything of slacks. You, you, you wore dresses to school. And um, along toward the eighth grade, um, then slacks were allowed in the wintertime. And um, I can remember my mother forbidding me to wear my ski pants in school because then I'd be too hot and I'd go outdoors and I'd catch my death and never get over. And so I used to wear a cotton skirt underneath my ski pants. And I'd say to her, I'll take my ski pants off, which I never did. I got caught, but uh, she didn't say much, uh, you know, but it just, uh, and uh, you wore jumpers. Gr girls had jumpers and long-sleeved um, sweaters and uh, blouses and stuff to go with it. And, you know, you, you had sweaters uh, that, you know, you wore over that. One of the classy things I can remember seeing in the Sears um, or Spiegel catalogs um, that I loved were what they called sweater sets. Uh, you had a short sleeve sweater that had a matching cardigan, and the cardigan usually had some kind of embroidery or something on it. And the one that I coveted um, was pink, and the uh, pullover was just plain, but the cardigan that went over it had the um, Royal Navy Blue frogs on it that were like the uh, West Point uniforms and, uh, you know, well, of course, you know, we, wartime, you know, and oh, I wanted one of those so badly I thought that was the living end. And then uh, as we got into high school, oh, and if you wore sneakers to school, your parents were poor. They were damn poor. They were dirt poor. What was a good shoe? In grade school. Well, it was the right kind of shoe, leather shoes? Yeah. 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 Uh, you, you did not wear sneakers to school. I mean, even if your folks didn't have any money, you didn't wear sneakers to school. Yeah. I, I've seen the day that uh, uh, kids I know stayed out of school for two or three days, the first few days of school, because their parents had to wait till the next payday in order to buy them a pair of shoes to go to school. Um, when we got into high school, it was brown and white saddle shoes. 
and I wanted a pair. Well, my mother was raised. You don't wear white after Labor Day. And you go to school after Labor Day. So you don't wear brown and white shoes. Wait a minute. Talk. You don't wear white after any, anywhere? Yeah, That's after what? Labor Day. You don't wear white before Memorial Day. That's when you put on the white hat and the white dresses and white shoes and things like that. Okay. And then you stop wearing them Labor Day. Interesting. Yeah. And May 15th, which happened to be my mother and father's wedding anniversary, that was straw hat day. That was when the men brought out their straw hats and wore them. Um, I wanted a pair of saddle shoes. And as I went up a grade or so, I, I kept teasing. And so finally she said that I could have a pair of saddle shoes, but I had to keep them polished. Well, the style was the dirtier the saddle shoes, the more in you were. So if I had gone to school with polished saddle shoes, I'd have been ostracized, you know, so I just didn't have saddle shoes. Uh, guess what was the first pair of shoes I bought when I got out of school on my own and got one of my first paychecks? Saddle shoes, brown and white saddle shoes with pink ankle socks, I thought with a lemon end. And then they came out with ballerina skirts, which were full skirts, all you know, um, all the way to the floor almost, and you wore those to school, which was not very practical. Uh, I, I I had a couple, but not uh, so much in school. And in uh, high school, the fad came that you wore a single strand of pearls with your sweater. Well, you didn't. Pearls were for dress up. You did not wear pearls with something that was sporty, which was a sweater. Says who? My mother. Gotcha. <laughs> and that was not proper. So I never wore pearls to school. Uh, also, the style was that you took your cardigan, put it on backwards, buttoned it up the back, and wore it, you know, with your string of pearls. Well, I was forbidden to do that too. So when you get to school, you turn it around and you <laughs> you wore it, you know. And then I think eventually I probably convinced them, you know, someplace along the line. But um, it's it, interesting to think back because uh, that's uh, I can't remember when Bobby Soxers became the in thing, but ankle socks were definitely the in thing, and. Um, I was in high school, I think, um, when um, Frank Sinatra became popular. And so I think that was part of the Bobby Sox uh, era and so forth. Uh, you know. And um, it just, and, and the hairstyles, because uh, Veronica Lake wore her hair over one eye. So uh, you copied that if you had long hair. Uh, I had braids up until I was 16. And the reason I no longer had braids was because Roger Reynolds cut my braids on the school bus. <sighs> my father was livid. His pride and joy was my long hair. I, I could sit on my hair. It was that long. And, uh, but I was glad to get rid of it. Uh, it, was, it was a pain. And... Um, so I, that, it didn't bother me, but it upset him tremendously. But um, 
And in those days, the permanent wave, uh, they had begun to use the solutions and stuff, but before that, back uh, when we were in grade school, permanent wave was like these um, clips that were hitched to electrodes, you know? I mean, <laughs> and today's curling irons that you plug into the wall are just an electrically heat-controlled adaptation of the one you used to stick down the lamp chimney and hope you didn't get it too hot because if you did, it burned your hair. Well, uh, but, um, you know, it, it's interesting to me to see certain things come back into style with innovations. And I can remember, oh, probably 20 years ago, um, my friend Gertrude's daughter came home from a shopping trip and she said, Oh, Mama, Mabel, you've got to see these. I've got this magnificent pair of shoes. They are so neat. And she had this pair of uh, dressy pumps. And she opened them up, brown and white spectator pumps. What does that mean? Which were, <laughs> and our mother and I looked at each other and we just burst out laughing. Um, they were a pump, uh, you know, with uh, well the different height heels, um, but mostly uh, what we used to call a Cuban, which is inch and a half, two inch at the most. And it was a wooden, like a stack heel. And, you know, that was stained to look like wood. It, well, I imagine in those days it was a wooden heel. Um, and the back of the counters uh, were brown. The rest of the shoe was white except for the cap across the toe. And that was brown also. And then, of course, they had black ones and they had red ones and they had blue ones, you know, as the style progressed. And it just sort of died out. But, I mean, spectator pumps, that, that was the in thing. And um, the ones that she bought, uh, all they had done was just adapted the size of the um, colored uh, thing on it. And <clears throat> the heels were probably uh, plastic that had been painted, uh, you know, to resemble the uh, wood stack. And, um, you know, we, we just got a big kick out of it because, you know, it was nothing new for us. We had worn them as young people. And, uh, but, um, you mentioned your job. Where was your first job? My first job uh, was in Peterborough working for the American Guernsey Cattle Club, which registered all of the uh, purebred Guernsey cattle in the United States. It was quite a place. Now, you're saying you, you traveled over Temple Mountain to go to work every day? Yeah, uh, bus line. Ah. And um, we used to buy our tickets, and uh, which was like... Um, Seems to me it was nine seventy-five for the week. You know, if you bought you bought a week's ticket, and uh, we went through Wilton, out the Intervale. Uh, we turned off um, at West Wilton and went into Temple, and picked up somebody that lived there, and then came out and then uh, went up, you know, Temple Mountain. Now, there were many times in the winter when we couldn't make the hills and we would have to sit and wait for, um, you know, a sand wagon or somebody, you know, something uh, to come along and uh, help us uh, to get up over. We petitioned the uh, Guernsey and uh, they eventually broke down and paid for our transportation, uh, you know, but uh, I went to work there uh, 10 days after I graduated from high school. And I worked there until um, January of uh, 1952.
and I went from there to Hitchener Manufacturing where I worked until October 1st, 1956 and that time was punctuated with three children um, and um, I, I worked in the uh, wax department and I saw an interesting thing on TV the other night um, something that they were making uh, antique copies of antique <clears throat> brassware for doorknobs and hinges and you know plaques and things like this were using the same lost wax about the that Hitchener uses uh, to do the investment castings uh, done lost wax mix. and I did uh, worked in the wax department I worked there while Frank was over in Korea how'd you meet Frank oh that was family oh uh, yeah we uh, we were 10 years old the first time we saw each other he uh, was up from the city they were visiting the Dickies uh, and um, there was a big uh, sand pile over across the street from their house and uh, he and whoever was with him um, were there playing trucks uh, in the sand pile and we both had on overalls I remember that mine are probably brown because they probably came from uh, the state welfare and uh, that's what they gave you was uh, brown overalls and um, I, I don't know, I can't remember what his looked like, but I, I remember mine were brown. And they were bib overalls. And um, he remembers seeing me um, and thinking, and of course, and I stuck right to my father's uh, <laughs> side. Um, but um, he remembers me as being uh, stuck up, you know, um, prude. Uh, whatever and because as his family got to know my family um, he disliked me thoroughly because his mother found out that I got good marks in school and he didn't and she used to hold that up to it <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, uh, yeah yeah that that's how uh, I, I met him was uh, through friends of the family through the Dickies and uh, I babysat. He's the tenth of the eleven kids. Eight of them lived to be full grown. And I babysat uh, for them. Um, they would go to the dances at uh, Milford Fishing Game Club every Saturday night. And they would come up and different brothers uh, and, and sisters and bring their kids. And I would go and I would babysit with the kids. And then uh, sometimes his brother John or he would come home and babysit with me and um, and that's how we got to know each other you know but it was because our, our families uh, were friends we've gone down all the list we're going down the list I'm sure there's an infinite number of things but that we're not thinking of I'm sure you know, what about were, were there uh, ethnic groups or minority groups in town was there the French people or the Greek people or the Italian people or the black people was there was there no such groups um, the only group that I was conscious of uh, remembering in town 
was Protestant and Catholic. No kidding. Now you mentioned earlier there was a, a family unhappiness in your marriage. Was that a religious thing? And, and um, you, you mentioned how you didn't elope, but you kind of decided oh, to. Oh, uh, no, no, it wasn't. Um, okay, well then let's go back to the Protestant. What did you say, Protestant? Uh, and Catholic. And Catholic. Okay. Uh, we played together. We get along together, but we knew that the Catholic kids were not supposed to play with Protestants, they were not supposed to date Protestants, and uh, they could not supposedly belong to, although a lot of them did, the Grange or the Girl Scouts or anything else that had a secret password that they couldn't tell the priest. Fascinating. I know that you're incredulous, but uh, that's the way it was. Sure. And... Um, What's this tell the priest thing? Now, would, were you Protestant? Or oh, Catholic? yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, I'm a cradle Episcopalian. Uh, the, what is the library in Brookline now was uh, back when I was born, the Methodist Episcopal Church, which is where I was baptized. David was baptized in the, I think, in the Congregational Church, but I'm not sure. So you, even as a kid, you were conscious that those were the Catholic kids? And oh, yeah. Oh yeah, and I can remember the look on my mother's face because, uh, of course, my grandmother, her mother, uh, turned Catholic. Um, her great-grandmother went to a fortune teller at some point and was told that one of her children would become a Roman Catholic. And because my aunt Helen Tetlow uh, was so religious, they always felt it would be she. It was not. Uh, she was the one that was the missionary to Japan and started the uh, church in Kanazawa, Japan, and whose um, steamer trunk I have. Now, she died in 1932, so that trunk is that old, and it still has painted on the end of it, H.E. Tetlow, Boston, Mass, USA. And so that had to have come home after she died, um, you know. And, um, but uh, my grandmother, uh, Mabel Eaton Tetlow Smith became a Roman Catholic and uh, so my mother was brought up in the Episcopal Church and uh, she stayed in it um, but my first thing uh, understanding um, that somebody was Catholic uh, was when the Gogans moved into town and I've mentioned them before. Ermin Gogan uh, was in my class, and we had a very friendly thing uh, going between us because we both got good marks. You know, it was to see who could get the best. Um, one good Friday, uh, fifth grade. Now, it's interesting because she came when they were in the third grade, and I don't remember Good Friday any other year except that one. But um, she was going to keep the silence from noon to three. And so uh, I agreed to keep the silence with her. And the teacher was going around asking us questions. You know, we had to give answers. And if I didn't get the answer, I was going to get an F. Well, I would have got more than an F when I got home. So I broke the silence. But I can remember getting off the bus and going to my mother and saying, Mama, I want to become a Catholic so I can keep Good Friday. And she hastened to assure me that I didn't have to be Roman Catholic in order to keep Good Friday. 
uh, and I do keep Good Friday. But, uh, you know, it, it, when I was in high school, uh, they finally, I think about the time I got to be a junior, they, uh, if you had a letter from home, uh, they would let you out to go to a Good Friday service. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time, uh, the priest in our church for three hours would conduct by himself the Good Friday services. And you'd go through the seven words and, you know, different hymns and so forth and different readings and uh, different homilies. And um, you could come and go anytime you wanted. Um, you know, they would ask that you be polite enough to go during a hymn, you know, but uh, so as not to disturb people's meditation. But um, I can remember going and um, spending the whole three hours and um, and I went even after uh, he left uh, when we had father. Uh, that was father. Um, hmm. Father Piper. What church? Uh, uh, church of Our Savior in Milford. Fa uh, Lawrence Piper was the first priest I uh, knew, and then um, he dropped dead the same day Franklin D did. Let me ask you, was the construction of the Roman Catholic Church in Brookline within your time? In yes. Oh, it was. Hmm. What, if anything, do you remember about that? Uh, well, my friend Jenny uh, Fesneman was instrumental in that, and she went uh, to that. Uh, um, Eldo was not uh, Catholic, but uh, Jenny was uh, very devout, and um, she was buried from there. And, uh, you know, I remember going to that service, I think, which is the only time I've ever been in that church. Uh, and now I understand that the services are Saturday only, that there are no Sunday services. I don't know. But um, uh, I do um, I do remember it being built. Uh, I don't remember much about it, but I, I can't remember what year it was. But I do, I do remember when it was built. Did your parents go to church? My mother did. My father went occasionally, but, I mean, his... Um, his religion was uh, being decent to people and taking care of nature. You know, in, uh, he uh, used to have a saying, uh, something about, um, well, it's okay if you want to, but you don't have to be there every time the door swings. You know? <laughs> and, um, but um, he never prevented us uh, from going. And the, diocese, the Episcopal Diocese of New Hampshire had a rule Sunday school system called Mountain Mission by Mail, MMM. Um, Amy Van Dorn Little uh, from uh, Great Falls Farms, Hampton Falls, New Hampshire, was uh, the mentor for it uh, then. Uh, not being disrespectful, but uh, she was short, and you just, you, this face that just smiled and radiated, um, you looked at her and physically um, the way I could describe her was that she was a grown up Campbell Soup kid okay. you know I mean that round face and you know that smile and that joyfulness and um, you were paired with a priest it started um, cradle wise uh, your parents were responsible for seeing to it that you did your lessons. Um, uh, David started out younger than I. I was eight. In fact, I still have the um, 
St. James Bible that they uh, gave me. Father Piper uh, did the inscription that's in the front of it. Uh, and it was September, I forget what date, 1938, that they gave me the Bible. And David um, got his lessons uh, once a month. Uh, I got mine every week. And uh, you appeared with a priest or a retired priest or someone who was a mentor. And um, let's see, the first mentor I had uh, was a gentleman from Nashua and um, Niles, Bishop Niles. Uh, I can't remember his first name right now. Uh, and then the mentor I had after that, who eventually, when Amy uh, Little died, became the person that was the head of MMM uh, was Roger Bonney. Long, thin drink of water with a shock of red hair. He must have been at least 6'6 or something. You know, I mean, he, he was basketball height. Uh, and uh, he, he was a fabulous person. He developed polio and uh, both legs uh, were involved and uh, he was wheelchair after that. And I kept in touch with him the whole time that he was in the hospital. And uh, even afterwards, when he got out and recuperated, uh, he went to a place in Michigan called Parish Field, which is like a conference center. And uh, I kept in touch with him there for a long time, and then I just sort of dwindled off, so I don't know whether he died or what happened. But, uh, but even as an adult, uh, I was in touch with him. I was in touch with Amy Little as an adult. Um, I can <clears throat> remember... Um, telling her that uh, I was carrying Jenny uh, because we had been married all, uh, four years and we were still childless and so I didn't just figured that I was never going to have any kids and uh, so I wrote joyfully to tell her about it and she was so thrilled and I wrote and told her after Jenny had been born I got this letter back from the lawyers at the bank and she had